This is Knowing God with Heart and Mind, the virtual church classroom podcast presented each week by Shiloh United Methodist Church in Jasper, Indiana, and hosted by me, Pastor Dan, with my ably assisting daughter, Bethany. Each week we study the Bible together with you, and our goal is knowing God's heart and mind with all of our hearts and minds. Uh, It is our hope that this virtual Bible study serves as a additional resource to your spiritual growth and your Christian living, but we desperately, earnestly urge you to be a part of a church community. Don't let this be the only thing you do. And listen, friends, I understand that some church communities fit you and your personality better than others, and I understand that some are more biblically based than others, and there are so many different kinds of churches that uh, there's something for every taste. But at the end of the at the end of the day, what we're trying to do together is know God with our heart and mind, and we want to be a part of a church where knowing God's heart and mind with all of our hearts and mind is the goal. That is to say, where we are transformed by the grace of God through Jesus Christ into fully functioning followers of Jesus, his disciples, being his body, the church, on earth, bringing glory to God the Father. That, that's our goal. And so this is part of how we do that at Shiloh, by studying together in the quiet places and those times when we uh, would like to be in the Word, but we have other things to do. So this is the very essence of this virtual Bible study. We are studying right now the book of Revelation. We are studying uh, Revelation, and this is episode uh, 25, episode 25 of the Revelation Bible Study, and it is being recorded on Sunday, October the 7th, 2018. Our psalm reading today is Psalm 26, a psalm of David. Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have led a blameless life. I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Test me, O Lord, and try me. Examine my heart and my mind, for your love is ever before me, and I walk continually in your truth. I do not sit with deceitful men, nor do I consort with hypocrites. I abhor the assembly of the evildoers and refuse to sit with the wicked. I wash my hands in innocence and go out about your go about your altar o lord proclaiming aloud your praise and telling of all your wonderful deeds i love the house where you live o lord the place where you glory your glory dwells do not take away my soul along with sinners my life with bloodthirsty men in whose hands are wicked schemes whose right hands are full of bribes But I lead a blameless life. Redeem me and be merciful to me. My feet stand on level ground in the great assembly. I will praise the Lord. Judge me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity.
Oh Lord, we pray with the psalmist that your judgment will be full of mercy and grace for us. Our heart's desire, like the psalmist, is to avoid all wickedness, all evil, to steer clear of those things that take us away from you. Oh God, we know that it is a difficult thing to judge who is evil and what is entirely wrong. It's so much, there's so much gray stuff in our world, Lord. But we know that if we can be with you in a spirit, if the Holy Spirit can guide our spirits, that we will have that, uh, that sort of spiritual sixth sense that reminds us to be alert in a particularly difficult situation or around particularly difficult people. We pray, Lord, that we might not be party to the evil that is done all around us in a godless world where people have no respect for you and therefore no respect for each other, your chief creation. Help us then, Lord, to live in a way that honors and glorifies you. As we look at these passages in scripture today, open our eyes, help us to see the true evil that can exist inside in our world without you. Help us to see just how ugly the world would be if you were not influencing the decisions of your people and their leadership in the world around. Oh God, for everyone listening, I pray your special blessing and answers to their prayers in the name of Jesus. Amen. We're back in the studio after our time of prayer, and we are getting ready to dig into actually the last part of chapter 11 of Revelation, where we left off last time. And, uh, you know, I was just telling Bethany that this is a, uh, a passion for me. I like, I like radio. I've been a person that's listened to radio all my life. I worked at a radio station, and I had this idea that I was going to make some sort of podcast that really had quality to it, and I've, I've gotten a hold of some decent microphones and a mixing board and some stuff like that, and, and I just said to her right before we started, I said, you know, I've done everything I can to make this a quality podcast, and then I speak. <laughs> and so bottom line is, is no matter how hard I try to make this a really top quality uh, recording the fact is is it's only as good as I can make it and the words are only as good as what comes out of my mouth so that being said uh, please continue to be forgiving of our little imperfections and uh, you know we're we're in the grace business after all and this is a book of grace so that being said uh, we were reading chapter 11 and we read all about the two witnesses and uh, we had some really interesting conversation about the two witnesses. Chapter 11, where we left off at verse 12, 
basically, the uh, in verse 12, the two witnesses have been dead for three days. They are suddenly uh, recomposed instead of decomposed, and they that ascend. so gross. Well, you know, recomposed. I know, it sounds really gross. So they ascend to heaven, and as they ascend to heaven, chapter, uh, chapter 11, verse 13 says, At that very hour, there was a severe earthquake, and a tenth of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. The third woe is coming soon. So we left off basically with two guys who spent several years terrifying the residents uh, because they were preaching a word that was so hard for them to hear and so offensive to the leaders. And the leaders apparently uh, were trying everything they knew to get rid of these guys. I mean, <clears throat> I think of it in realistic terms. Um, you know, uh, this is kind of how my brain works on this stuff. You, you, you stop and think about it. Uh, if I go down to the courthouse in Jasper and I protest, I have a legal right to do that. Um, if I protest or camp out on the steps of the courthouse for days, weeks, months, sooner or later, they're going to find some statute that says you're not allowed to stay that long. You're not allowed to keep this up 24-7 weeks, days, years, whatever. And then they will get some county sheriffs. Mm -hmm. and they will collect me up, and if it takes five of them to overpower me because I'm a particularly strong dude, they'll just do five big old burly sheriffs lifting me up and carrying me off to jail. And that's how these things go in real life. And so no doubt about the time everybody was pretty much fed up with the two witnesses and basically saying, you know, you had your time, now shut up and go away, and they just keep going. The plan is to send the sheriffs in or the whoever and collect these two guys and haul them off. Except they can't. They, they can't. They, they try to overpower these guys and apparently they breathe fire. Um, and so they go, wow, the, these guys are, this, this is going to be a big problem. So the authorities go back and they say, okay, fine, get the guys with the black vehicles and the black armor and all that stuff that comes out whenever we're really scared. Get the SWAT guys and they go in and they try to take them out. It probably helped, though, that they were running out of people that could do that. Yeah, you know. and Their their, uh, options were limited at that point. I mean, you know, I don't think we really fleshed it out that much because we were speculating more about who they were and all that, but... But in a very practical, worldly sense, the way you deal with people like that is you use your military might. And I don't mean that necessarily as a army in the conventional sense, but you, you pull out your police force. Mm -hmm. You know, you get, you get police officers who are armed and armored. Uh, and, you know, you've got, they, they've got a plan for riot control. They know how to get hundreds of people subdued and yet... These, guys, these two guys, they can't subdue them no matter what they do. And, and maybe they even went so far as to bring their own flamethrowers and their own tanks and their own 
bazookas or whatever and they, you know I, you can tell i just watched the japanese monster movie bazooka that's such a world war ii reference you know but they come in with their smart bombs and and whatever and no matter what they do they can't get these guys and so finally they just have to live with it and it's beyond being just frustrated with them for what they're saying it's just being frustrated with the fact that they can't do anything with them they can't mm -hmm. control them and if you think about it that's one of the things that is is like at the core of human depravity is control we want to control others we want to control our circumstances and so why did they hate these guys so much well because they couldn't control them mm -hmm. and and they stood where they want said what they wanted and nobody could do a darn thing about it and this is why they hated them so much and so when they finally tried one more thing and it happened to be within god's timing they got them and then they were so pleased that they finally got these guys because, you know, probably every time they decided to go after this, these two, it was a big public event. Watch, we're going to get them under control and then you'll see who's really in charge. And so it's a big, you know, news event mm -hmm. and then they get beat again. And so when they finally get these guys, they want everybody in the world to know they're dead. Look, there's the rotting corpses. They're dead. And then three days later, in front of the whole world, the rotting corpses recompose and ascend to heaven. And then there's a massive earthquake. Now, if that doesn't sound and feel biblical to even the most cold-hearted atheist, mm -hmm. and then you see them going, you know, giving glory to God, which I think is interesting because what we're going to read in a minute in the seventh trumpet is that there are two kinds of giving glory to God, I think, in chapter 11. There's giving glory to God because, you know, they're going, oh, God, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Like, they've just witnessed supernatural power. Well, we were wrong. Yeah, and so I think you see one kind of glory to God that is a kind of glory in the sense that they've at least reached a point where they can't deny God. Yeah. But then you see heaven's version of glory to God. And that's where we left off. So, Bethany, do you mind uh, reading the rest of chapter 11 for us? And then we'll talk it through. And uh, Bethany, as you may have noticed, is dealing with a, uh allergy, cold. Some kind of tickle in my throat. Something's made her cough a lot lately. But I'm not sick or anything. Well, one thing's for sure, they won't be able to catch it through the internet. No, that's true. <laughs> okay. And then I speak. <clears throat> the seventh trumpet. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who were seated on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, <clears throat> and your saints and those who reverence your name, both small and great, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and within his temple was seen the Ark of his Covenant. And there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and a great hailstorm. Okay. So there's a pattern <coughs> that we've witnessed in the book of Revelation <coughs> uh, that is happening here. And it's a pattern of, 
of uh, uh, like station breaks <laughs> or or if you were watching a soap opera or something like that um, we hear what's happening on earth and then we hear what's happening in heaven mm -hmm. then we hear what's happening on earth and then we hear what's happening on heaven so there will be a series of, of events so it's it's basically like the if this were a screenplay, you know, it would say scene change, right? And so what's happened is, is that we've witnessed the, uh, poor choice of words on my part, we saw the two witnesses mm -hmm. on earth and all the drama that unfolded with them. And then it ends with this terrible earthquake and people giving glory to God in the sense of saying, well, I guess whatever it is we're dealing with, is pretty powerful and so even though we don't acknowledge the god of those people we have to admit that their god's pretty powerful right. so there's a kind of giving glory to god and then the scene changes and we're in heaven and we're seeing authentic glory yeah. to god and it starts with glory that emanates from god um what's interesting is is that that chapter 11 verse 19 really speaks to uh, what's happening in the next phase of the Revelation story mm -hmm. because the temple is open in heaven. And, and what we're hearing basically is the real temple is in heaven. Um, the real ark is in heaven. Mm -hmm. And that the temple on earth, the ark on earth, these are symbols of what is in heaven or, or imitations of what is in heaven. And so if you think about it, Revelation's tying together everything that has been in the book since back at the time of the Exodus. You know, mm -hmm. when God establishes the covenant with Moses, he sets up a tabernacle that is supposed to be a uh, imitation or a reproduction of the temple and the throne in heaven. Uh, I've seen a lot of representations of the Ark of the Covenant, you know, and probably the most famous one, of course, is from Indiana Jones. But the one that I think is the most interesting is because because it's one the Im, the picture that I've seen tells me this person really reads the scriptures and absorbs their meaning. There is on the cap of the Ark of the Covenant is this gold lid with the two angels with their wings extended, and the picture that I've seen shows it looking sort of like a a throne or a seat. In other words, the angel's wings wrap around the back side of the lid, where in most representations it goes right across the middle of the lid. Mm -hmm. But in the one that I like best, it shows that the angel's wings are actually the seat back of a throne. And that makes sense to me because that area above the wings or, or in that space where the wings are and the top of the lid is mm -hmm. that's called the mercy seat mm -hmm. and so it it makes sense to me that the ark of the covenant is supposed to represent the mercy seat throne of god and and so i like the image of the ark actually looking like a seat mm -hmm. you know uh some people believe that that uh the ark still exists i'm in that crowd but I think given how it was constructed and everything, it may be that the only thing left is that lid. But that's the only part that really matters. I think it's funny, too, that we think of it as lost when clearly God knows where yeah. it is. It's only lost if nobody knows where it is. Right. But 
And I think that when that thing reappears, <laughs> it will probably be a sign to us uh, that some of these events are starting to come to pass. Because yeah. I think that every time something crucial in the Bible uh, is proven beyond doubt, it, it changes the, the game plan a little bit. But So basically, this scene doesn't seem to have any particular, like, interpretive value as a, you know, like, like there's not much we can say except that we've seen these guys worshiping up there before. We saw them at the beginning. We saw them midway through. Every time the scene cuts back to the throne room of God, every time God says, and now phase two, and now phase three, and now phase four, you know, Jesus is executing God's plan that is on that scroll he's got. And every time one of the, the uh, uh, stages or steps of that plan is completed, heaven says, Hallelujah, praise the Lord, you mm -hmm. know. Well, and the 24 elders kind of are foreshadowing, too, because they're saying time has come for judging the dead and rewarding and destroying those who destroy the earth. So they're kind of saying, here's what's coming. Yeah, yeah. Everybody up there <laughs> knows what the schedule is. Yeah. You know, I say up there, but, you like, know. Like, oh, that was the seventh trumpet. Yeah. This comes next. Yeah. You Checking know. the timetable. We record this on a Sunday. We'll probably watch a football game today. And, and you know you know when the first quarter's over. You know when it's halftime. You know when the third quarter's over. And uh, the one thing we're pretty sure of is there's no overtime in Revelation. So, you know, mm -hmm. when it gets down to the two-minute warning, boy, you better be paying That's attention. It, <laughs> well, I don't know that there's much more we can say about that part. Do you yeah, have anything? No, I don't think so. I think it's kind of nice a change that the seventh trumpet didn't lead to more chaos yeah it led to praise yeah i mean there's more coming but yeah well and and <laughs> my commentary makes a really good point that what happens in chapter 12 actually starts with verse 19 of chapter 11 mm -hmm. so so this is a case where the page where the the chapter break is probably not ideal yeah um for the sake of our listeners <clears throat> this is one of those bible study things that whenever i'm doing a, a a bible study with a group i always try to share a few things about just bible study in general uh in general what you need to understand is is that everything you read in your bible started out as a scroll somewhere uh especially the old testament and those scrolls were not divided uh in the same way that your Bible's divided. Um, when the printing press was invented, when, and by the way, Gutenberg invented it so he could reproduce Bibles. Mm -hmm. I think that people forget that sometimes. Uh, but when printing became a thing and there was sort of a whole science and, uh, and uh, craft to printing that emerged out of that, that's when we started getting uh the kinds of formats we've become familiar with the mm -hmm. columns the the page breaks the various all of these formatting things became a thing after printing and by the time the bible started getting reproduced with regularity there was a lot that went into making them that was done by the craftsmen who printed and it was newspaper printing people who said It'll be easier to read your Bible if it's divided into sections. Mm -hmm. And so 
working with Bible scholars, the earliest printers of the Bible, tried to divide the Bible into chapters that made sense. And they assigned the numbers to the verses. And we will be eternally grateful because it gives us the ability to use our Bibles uh, in a meaningful way and to share things like that. I mean, how could we do what we're doing right now if it was not for what these guys did? Right. But that does take us to the fact that there are occasionally errors where you can tell in your reading that it probably would have been better if the chapter break didn't occur where it did. Mm -hmm. But if you stop and think of it globally, it's not a big deal. But since a lot of us have less practical experience with the Bible and we tend to approach it the way we do all the other things we read, we go, well, that's a, that's a weird ending to a chapter. Maybe they were trying to build in cliffhangers to keep <clears throat> you interested. Could be. It's not out of the question. <laughs> but anyway, so there's a little sideline for you Bible scholars out there. If you're wondering why sometimes your chapters don't make any sense, it's because human beings divided them up. And sometimes they... So I think that we miss a little bit of continuity. So I'm going to ask you to read some more verses, mm -hmm. starting with 1119 and just pass right through into 12. Mm -hmm. so that people can hear how it reads. I think they'll find that interesting. I would like to point out for our listeners that as of the end of chapter 11, we are halfway through Revelation. Oh, boy. Whoa. We may finish this study in another year. I know. <laughs> I said that for some of our friends who tease me about how long I take going through the Bible. But, you know, we got the rest of our lives, and it hey, is the Bible right. after all. I'm not complaining. <laughs> But just for anyone keeping keeping track, we're halfway. Yay! Yay! Are we there yet? Oh. <laughs> do we want to get there? Yes, we do. Yes, yeah. we do. Okay, here we go. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and within his temple was seen the Ark of his covenant. And there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and a great hailstorm. A great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun and with the moon under her feet and a crown of twelve stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his heads. His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child the moment it was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the desert to a place prepared for her by God, where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. Okay. So we've got some pretty powerful symbolism here. And um, <coughs> first of all, there are, this is, this is where it gets a little dicey. Um, I want to slow down and really take this carefully. This woman, mm -hmm. um, I'll, I'll open by saying I am convinced that this woman represents Israel. Okay. Having said that, you will recall since you are the daughter of someone who was raised in the Roman Catholic tradition. Yes. And you are the niece and grandchild of practicing Catholics mm -hmm. who we love very much and respect very much and with whom we have a great deal of common doctrine. Yes. However, 
there is a certain devotion to Mary, the mother of Jesus, that is common among Catholics and even, even doctrinal in certain ways that identifies her as this woman. You've even seen statues in certain places mm-hmm. yep. where this very image is the statue. Um, I do not support that view of her. And I do not see how this can be construed into that. And I'll base this on one very simple statement. If you look at the book of Isaiah, a very famous line from Handel's Messiah says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. It is describing two people. Mm-hmm. It's the same person, but it's describing two singular events. A child is born to Israel. A son is given by God. Mm-hmm. And so it's not Mary's son we're talking about when the son is given. It's the son of God mm-hmm. that is given. The child is born to Mary. The son is given by God. They're two distinct persons. Mm-hmm. In that, this is the fully divine and the fully human being described. The New Testament Gospels painstakingly outline how the lineage of Jesus ascends all the way from Adam. And that it is through both Mary and Joseph that he is truly the anointed Messiah. Mm Mm-hmm. Of Israel in the human sense but what this describes if you think about it then is a woman who's uh, uh, she's she's the mother of the Messiah of Israel and if you listen to the way that's worded and you might even want to go back and reread some of it again it's describing Israel's plight and it even describes how they have to escape into the desert mm-hmm. and why are they escaping into the desert? And that becomes more clear as we read further along. So this well, is the 12 is a really stars makes sense then mm-hmm. 12 tribes, 12 stars. Yep. You got mm-hmm. it. And then there's this dragon mm-hmm. and what does the dragon always represent in scripture? <coughs> oh, well, you know, the best guy. Yeah, Satan. Our favorite guy. In fact, there's <coughs> a word that the original origin word that is used to describe the serpent in the Garden of Eden, the serpents that were uh, consumed by the the one that Moses made from mm-hmm. his staff. Yeah. There's a word that's always used in the original language that translates to dragon. Yeah. So snakes get a bad rap. Yeah, snakes get a bad rap in the in the human uh, English snake translation. Was cool. He was just fine. Yeah, the English translation of the snake thing uh, is where we get a lot of the trouble. The serpent is actually a dragon, and it is not like any other creature described in Scripture. Mm-hmm. It isn't the same as Leviathan mm-hmm. or or any of that. This is a particular kind of creature, and it is a satanic demonic creature it's 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 like those giant locusts yeah it's not a cool thing it it's something that that comes from the abyss 
mm-hmm. that we were talking about earlier. But this particular dragon is, in fact, the embodiment of Satan. And it's sort of ironic because what you're hearing then is in a single set of verses, in a single chapter, you're hearing a description of the embodiment of God in a person of Israel. And you're seeing the embodiment of Satan in a dragon, in, in this demonic being, or well, I say demonic, but a Satan, this satanic creature. And so it's, it's literally and visibly a terrifying juxtaposition you know we have this this woman who's pregnant and gives birth to a child who is the child of israel the son of god and what could be more innocent and beautiful than a baby we saw some this morning that just well, beautiful. it's a reminder that we were created in his image yeah so the and image of god is us Literally, this child and her unborn baby are being pursued by Satan. Mm -hmm. And we talked about this in Sunday school, or I always call that Wednesday night class Sunday school. (laughs) And I don't know why. It's Wednesday school. It's Wednesday night friendship and learning. (laughs) Anyway, that class I lead where we're we're looking at uh, the book of Esther. And I took pains to show everybody how the book of Esther is another illustration (laughs) of Satan's determination to nuke God's plan God has made it clear from the minute Satan was successful in tempting the first man and woman that God has another way of deliverance and Satan is determined here is an image of the woman giving birth to this child who will be the Messiah crushing the serpent's head right I mean this is the image of Israel defeating Satan by successfully producing the child who would be the son of God, the Messiah. And that's the point. That's the whole point of this story. But that doesn't mean Satan isn't thoroughly ticked off about it. And so this gives us a reason to stop and think for a minute about all the times in the Bible that Satan has tried to stop God's plan. He tries to kill off all the Israelites as they are concentrated in a certain area around the time of Esther. It's like Wile E. Coyote in the Roadrunner. He's never ending in his pursuit of Jesus. But he screws up every time. Even well, the, he even, doesn't screw up, but God's always outsmarting him. Yeah, I mean, you know, so before Jesus is born, he persuades Herod to destroy all the children in the area where these uh, this Messiah is supposed to come. Mm-hmm. Um, he tries to kill Jesus at numerous occasions during his life. And, uh, you know, he tries to convince Jesus to throw himself off a cliff. He tries to drown Jesus in a storm. He tries, you know, these were, these were seasoned veteran sailors. These, these fishermen have been out on this lake all their lives. They've been in every kind of weather on that lake. And this one terrified them. It wasn't a normal storm. Mm-hmm. And they were terrified. And, you know, what, who conjures up a storm that bad? And for what purpose other than to see if he can kill Jesus? Um, we talked about the rapture a few weeks ago, and one of the best things I ever heard about the rapture is, is perhaps one of the reasons that Jesus said nobody's going to know when it happens is because that means not even Satan. Mm-hmm. It's know? strategic. So it's strategic for the time of the rapture, which will obviously be the sign that all this other stuff is going down. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the day he cracks that seal open, it's the beginning of the end. It's the beginning of the fourth quarter or whatever you want to call it. And that's when Satan will know. Mm -hmm. So Satan doesn't know when it's coming. And so 
Uh, I heard a guy say one time, he said, do you think, now we're getting ahead of where we are in Scripture because we haven't gotten to this yet, but somebody said to, you, to this guy, said, do you think that the Antichrist is alive today? And this person said, yes, because Satan doesn't know yeah, we've we've had that conversation before about how we have the we have this theory. Yeah, that Satan's probably had somebody waiting in the wings every time, like in in all generations. Yes, yeah, because he doesn't know. He has to. So every generation, there's an antichrist ready to go. And this is definitely a theory, but like we've talked about how that might explain some of the the most evil people that. Mm-hmm. have existed in our li- in our lifetimes and previous lifetimes that might be an explanation for some of them. Yeah. No, that's that's because yeah. because like yeah, again getting ahead the antichrist seems to be kind of a tricky character. Mhm. So that but I think that that's still someone just imbued with evil. Sure. And if his job doesn't end up being antichrist he's still imbued with evil. Yeah, you know, given over to evil, and then, and then, of course, again, we're jumping ahead of our, our present location, but one of the things that we'll see is, is that when this goes down, whoever the current Antichrist candidate is, uh, will be uh, completely uh, consumed by Satan, like, by, by that, I mean, possessed, you know, I don't know how you want to put it exactly, but, so they're already really rotten, they're already easily influenced by satan but satan doesn't actually embody them and start working his evil plan until he knows this is the actual deal mm-hmm. and and so it's it's very interesting so we come back to this image of the woman and the dragon so i was just sitting here thinking about that image and this is a little bit of an aside but i've mentioned how much i love tolkien and lord of the rings mm-hmm. and i would love to know Hopefully one day I'll get to ask him about this. That's my my hope in life. In in heaven, I guess, not in life. Um, but I would like to know if this image inspired him at all with the character of Eowyn, who's one of my favorite characters in the whole series. But she's the shield maiden of Rohan. She's, she's this really amazing warrior woman. Mm. But she has this epic battle in The Return of the King with one of those Nazgul, the, the ring wraiths. Yeah, yeah. And... In Return of the King, they're not on horses anymore. They were on these really kind of demonic horses, but they're on these, like, dragons. Right. Black, creepy dragons. And she has this epic battle with one, and he says, don't you know no man can kill me? And she whips off her helm, and her hair comes tumbling down, and she says, I'm not a man. I remember that. I'm no man. And she takes him out. Wow. And it's amazing. And and it sounds like the woman and the dragon, like... Yeah. And... If I if if I know anything about Tolkien, which obviously I don't know a lot, but I know some, I'd say that he well he pulled I, a little bit from this. I happen to have done some study, <laughs> and I can tell you that that Tolkien was a very devout Catholic and a very devout Christian mm-hmm. man, and that these images would have definitely played into his his thought and. Uh, C.S. Lewis credits Tolkien with being the guy who gave him that last push that finally converted him to being a Christian after calling himself an atheist. Mm-hmm. So it was Tolkien that was like the last person yeah. who finally convinced him, you know, 
and uh, and he of course would describe many many people who were influential in many sources but but it's kind of fascinating because they both had a lot in common they both had a lot of, were well read about uh, Norse mythology mm-hmm. and and Greek mythology and all this stuff so it all comes into play but at the end of the day I would have to say that that Tolkien being the the lifelong Catholic Christian uh, most certainly had to have been I mean influenced. this uh, this sounds so much like that yeah and and I think it's really cool yeah because that's a really amazing scene in that book and she's pretty awesome pretty cool I remember so. that scene really well um, because thanks to you I finally watched all of those <laughs> um, but uh, so uh, Let's see, where'd we leave off exactly? We left off with them going into the desert and being taken care of for 1,260 days. Yeah. Um, with the woman fleeing. So 1,260 days. Uh, are you seeing an interesting, like, uh, how long were the two witnesses doing their thing before they finally died and rose again and ascended into heaven? It the was, same number of days. Yeah. So which one, we said would be over three years. So... So Basically, we're talking about seven years. We're talking about a period that some... Uh, th- that it would, would make sense if it totals up to seven years, wouldn't it? Because it's the seven years of tribulation. There's a tribulation and a great tribulation. And the three and a half years following the tribulation, uh, the first three and a half years, was called the great tribulation. And so we're at the midpoint. And heavens opened up the 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 temple is open for business in a big way up in or over in or wherever god's throne room is the temple in heaven is open and all of its power is being poured out and yet at the same time the abyss is open satan is roaming around in this dragon image israel is still there Mm mm-hmm Israel is the place where this earthquake happens, where the two witnesses happen, uh, Jerusalem to be specific. And it's at that moment, at midway through this seven-year tribulation, that Israel is pulled out. So the two guys are, in effect, witnessing to Israel. Uh, and then Israel is given an, a choice at that moment when they ascend to heaven and the earthquake's over. Of if if you believe that God is for Israel, it's time for you to get out of town mm-hmm. because Israel is about to be Jerusalem in particular is about to be overrun by the enemy, and so basically it's like Saigon in 1975 or whatever. I mean, it's it's time. They're getting out. They mm-hmm. are They are splitting. And they're going to go in, and a lot of people think it'll be Petra and, and over there in Jordan. But it, in any case, it's going to be uh, get out of town, go to the desert, and Israel is being described as the woman. And this is a good point, uh, a good time to point out to people that Israel is not the enemy. And, and I'm absolutely adamant in telling people that it is imperative that we pray for Israel, that we love Israel. Um, Obviously, we're speaking in biblical terms. I just don't know how else to say this, but but what we are saying is is we stand with every Bible-believing, committed follower of Yahweh who 
calls themselves children of, of Judah, of children of, of, of Abraham, you know, that, that they are they are the people that we're aligned with. Obviously, there are plenty of people in the world who call themselves Jews and people who call themselves Christians who are nominal at best. Um, and therefore, we're not saying that just because someone claims to be Jewish <coughs> that they are in alignment with us any more than we would believe that someone claiming to be Christian is in alignment with us. But when we look at this story, this is the story that unfortunately this is another one of these cases where in history somehow people drew justification from the bible for uh the the wholesale destruction of jews um it, it doesn't make any sense no. it's completely wrong uh this story points out to us that god still has a plan for israel that Israel is still part of the story, even down to the very end. Mm -hmm. And that God is, and, and it all comes to the fact that God never breaks God's promises. And God made a covenant with Abraham, a covenant with Moses. God made covenants with David. God is not going to break God's promises to Israel. He never says that I'm going to withdraw my promise because you didn't keep your end of the bargain. He <coughs> says, my promise remains but if you deviate from the promise, then you get what you get. But the promise remains. And so it is essentially a truth that God has had at least some to keep the covenant with all the way through. Mm -hmm. you know. And then for the sake of his son, he keeps the covenant. And so at the end of the day, this story is telling us that even at midway through the, tri the, the tribulation of, of the book of Revelation... God is still working with Israel. They're still part of the plan. And he delivers them from the great tribulation. Mm -hmm. He delivers them from the dragon who's trying to get rid of them. Imagine that. That dragon's trying to kill off Israel again. And, uh, you know, one of the ways you can spot the Antichrist uh, in waiting is that they almost always deliver Holocaust to Israel. You know, Haman, the guy we're reading about in the book of Esther, is an antichrist. You know, he's a guy that, that it rises to power, schmoozes his way through, figures out how to get the king on his side, get the people on his side. And then the first thing he wants to do when he has the opportunity is wipe out the Jews. So you want to spot an antichrist, look for somebody who hates Jews. Because sooner or later, that's your tell. Um, what's remarkable is, is that there are plenty of Jews who hate Jews, mm -hmm. just like there are plenty of Christians who hate Christians. Mm -hmm. I mean, every time you think of a Sunday pulpit where the pastor spends more time complaining about the Catholics, the Methodists, yes. the Protestants, the, the, we don't, whatever, uh, there's plenty of hatred within the so-called church and within Judaism. And it's so it's amazing because, because there will be people who will profess to be believers and whether it's Judaism or whether it's, uh, Christianity, and they'll still spew hatred towards the authentic, you know. Yeah. So anyway, it's 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 kind of amazing. Um, what do you think? We we we're gonna be probably having to wrap here pretty soon. Um, where did you stop exactly? And I stopped right before war in heaven. Okay, so when Michael goes at it. Okay, so that's a good place to stop. It is. Here's some thoughts. The next part of chapter twelve, I think, 
the the next part of chapter 12 is like the coolest action movie because <laughs> michael goes at it and he's like come on satan bring it and you know who wins i wonder i wonder what would it be like when we we're up there I wonder if we'd be able to like sit in theater seats. And Can we watch like eat popcorn while eat popcorn. Michael just takes him down? You know, it's like you thought the Avengers movies were good, right? Like this Michael's like Michael. I feel like could take all the Avengers and Thanos and Satan and just be like, "Forget you, buddy. Yep. I'm done." He's One pretty swat awesome. With his sword. Yeah, like he. He. You know. I hope we get to eat popcorn. <laughs> And I hope Michael's manna. cool with that. Manna. Or man, yeah, we can just eat manna and. <laughs> We'd be sitting in our seats watching, you know, this epic battle. Which I decided with someone with at church the other day that manna. manna for me is gonna be just like a giant bowl of peanut butter <laughs> and ice cream. So well, I'm in. Know. I'm here for it. All right. There's just one other thing that I thought would be fun to do because it's in my notes uh, to wrap this section. So we're not going to go into that battle today, but we will uh, talk about women just one more time. There are uh, four women in the book of Revelation. Mm -hmm. This is really cool. Revelation 2.20. We haven't heard. We haven't heard. That's that was so long ago for us. But we hear about Jezebel yeah. in Revelation two twenty. In, in 220. Thyatira, right? Yeah, and or what's Tira. what's Jezebel Jezebel's fundamental quality? You, you're trying to think She's, of a nice way to. Put I it. am. You can see it. I all can see over it on your face. face. It's, it's like I can't use words like that, Dad. Well, um, Jezebel's rotten. She, yeah. She's a. She's a nasty woman well the bible uses the word whore and it's you know basically someone who's who doesn't honor she's an actual nasty woman yeah she doesn't honor anything sacred um she she's a manipulator she's a conniver she's duplicitous to say the very least she's a she's a wicked woman and and uh and jezebel figuratively speaking is described as a whore in that a a whore in the biblical use of the word yeah is a description and think think of uh um, hosea the book of hosea okay a whore as used as the term is used in the bible it describes a person who is married to someone else is is in a covenant relationship with someone else but then sells herself to others not only betraying the covenant relationship that they have with someone, but also sort of treating themselves uh, in an un, in an ungodly, yeah, you know, way. I mean, it's just it's just like so. Israel is described as a as a whore sometimes in the Old Testament, meaning that that they were faithful to God until something better came along, you know, and that was the whole purpose of the story of Hosea, for example. The other one that's mentioned is the harlot. In chapter 17, which we we haven't gotten to yeah. yet, uh, and so let's be watching for the harlot. And then there's this woman that we've just talked about, and she represents Israel. And um, so it's just kind of interesting because because it, it isn't justification any more than than the Bible does not give justification for hatred towards Jews. The Bible doesn't give justification for belittling women or treating women as as uh, lesser human beings. But the truth is, is the women play vital roles in Scripture. And when it comes to 
uh, the book of Revelation, we see women, because they have the capacity to carry life within them, being described as either a Jezebel or a harlot who can carry life, but it's a life that's born into evil. Mm -hmm. Or we have the woman of Israel who brings the Messiah and brings life that saves the world, mm -hmm. you know. So, so uh, in the Bible, women are super important and, and deserving of great dignity and respect. In fact, I'm going to say as a closing remark for me that that Mary is worthy of our admiration and respect. Absolutely. She is, is. So when I say that I don't agree with the image that we read being a depiction of Mary, uh, the queen of heaven idea, this is what I was getting at. Um, I don't agree with that, but I agree that Mary is the most remarkable woman that ever lived. She's the first Christian. You know, she believed in the Messiah, Jesus Christ, and a new way of living under a new covenant before he was even born. She was convinced to be a Christian before Christ was born. You know, she was convinced at his conception. And so she's she's an incredible woman. And she's a yes girl. I always wanted to be a yes girl like Mary. I still do because Mary said yes like she didn't even question it she i mean she was like she gets the message from gabriel and she's like okay well that sounds really kind of wild and stuff but if god's picking me i guess here we go let's do it and yeah. she, she just says yes that's amazing it is it is and and uh, we should all want some of the most beautiful girls. words in the entire bible are spoken by her to elizabeth mm -hmm. when she says my soul magnifies the lord yep absolutely remarkable so mary is definitely worth our recognition and appreciation the only thing that i disagree with certain beliefs about is that she is in some way uh equal to jesus um there's no one other than jesus i think it's really important for her to be not fully like it's important that she's just human right for me, right. it is like that's. I think that's super important. She's human. Yeah. There, the the only divine thing about her is that she was created by the divine. Yes. Which makes us all divine. Yeah, and again, it, you know, should we listen to those who disagree with us? We don't mean any offense to you. We just can't find ourselves. We're not able to be convinced of this. Uh, I know the I know the tradition very well. I've I've been to the church that honors Mary's mother, Saint Anne. Mm -hmm. uh, I I am not trying to hurt your feelings or tell you that you're wrong. I'm just unconvinced that Mary was born without sin. I'm unconvinced that Mary was in some way equal with Jesus in our redemption. I don't think of her as a co-redemptrix. I do, on the other hand, believe with all my heart that she is the one of the most remarkable people that has ever lived and the first Christian. Yep. And I'm convinced that Jesus was the perfect salvation, uh, the perfect vehicle of salvation for us because his mother was a sinner mm -hmm. in the sense that she was born in the same way that we were having the natural tendency to sin that we all have. <coughs> And that's part of what makes him the Messiah is that he resists that and and shows that you don't have to be slave to sin 
if you have divine power. Mm-hmm. And so he gives us that. So anyway, th- these are theological differences, the doctrinal differences, but there's more that we have in common, and we will celebrate that. We, we do not think that our relationship with our Catholic friends or our place in heaven depends on whether we agree with each other about this thing. And we hope that whoever believes those things would feel the same way because we love you, we respect you, mm-hmm. and in no way do we want you to feel condemned by us, judged by us. We simply say with our hearts and minds wide open, we're just not convinced. And so we love you, but we'll disagree on that one. I think we've covered it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to thank everybody for listening. Remember, go to church. Keep going until you find one that's perfect for you. Come visit us at Shiloh. You can learn more about Shiloh United Methodist Church on shilohum.org. That's S-H-I-L-O-H-U-M dot org. And uh, you can find us on the Facebook group, Knowing God with Heart and Mind. We'll be glad to have you a part of it. And uh, now we have a YouTube channel at Shiloh that's going to start seeing more action. So uh, look up Shiloh United Methodist in Jasper, Indiana on YouTube. And uh, folks, we're just really grateful for your... Uh, honoring us with your time and attention so I'm going to say for my part God bless you and goodbye see you next week